Hey guys, good to see ya. Okay. Hi Dave. All right. Thanks. You took pity on me. Thanks. That's good. Uh, we're continuing our series on Genesis. Yay. Uh, so far, we've seen that Genesis is the story of God the Creator making a world, a heaven plus earth reality. Uh, and putting human beings in the middle of it uh, to be his angled mirror, to reflect his love and wisdom into creation and to partner with him in fulfilling his purposes for creation. And we've seen God working in and through Abraham, despite Abraham wavering. We've seen God working in and through Isaac, despite him being a bit foolish at times. And we've seen him working last week through Jacob, even though Jacob starts off as a thoroughly unworthy character, hardly able to represent God and be his angled mirror and shed God's love and light and wisdom into creation. <clears throat> but he comes good at the end. And now we see Joseph, Jacob's son, who starts out a little spoiled, but ends up being the archetypal wise representative of God. And <clears throat> the narrator is saying that this is what this Joseph character is what Genesis 1 is all about, being made in the image of God. Um, and it's through Joseph that we'll see God working restoration uh, of his heaven plus earth creation. Joseph, the truly wise human being, uh, God uses him to begin to solve some of the problems that are developing <laughs> and bring blessing. And Joseph is this huge glimpse of Jesus who will come 2,000 years later. And an amazing um, call to us to, to live likewise. And it's just an amazing story. Joseph, right? It's incredible. In chapter 37, <clears throat> as a young man, Joseph doesn't endear himself to his brothers. I'm sure you know the story. He's not a very pleasant character. He's clearly his father's favourite. And as number 11 out of 12 brothers... Uh, well, let's just say his ten older brothers don't have a good word to say about him. And he starts, he gives himself airs, um, <laughs> you could say. His father has given him a splendid multicoloured coat, which he's so proud of. I think this is Joseph here, and we don't know what the coat really was, but anyway, he's got a bit of colour there. So whatever it was, it was special, and... Joseph was proud of this coat uh, and as you'd expect, the brothers really don't like this special treatment of the 11th brother. Um, I don't know what your experience in your family was when one child was shown favouritism. Well, in this big family, Joseph is given this incredibly glamorous coat or shirt or whatever it is and... The others simply do not like it. They resent their father, Jacob. They resent Joseph. And they resent Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. <clears throat> the thing that, about Benjamin and Joseph is that they are the last sons of Jacob and they're the sons of Rachel, who dies giving birth to Benjamin. Rachel was Jacob's favourite wife, and so these two sons, Benjamin and Joseph, are Jacob's favourite sons. And Joseph dreams dreams. Uh, now, previously, when Jacob dreamed his dream, it was pretty cool. He saw 
a ladder up to heaven with angels descending and ascending. And that was a temple of God moment, a heaven meets earth moment. But Joseph's dreams are far more confronting, let me say. Uh, He dreams that he and his brothers were binding sheaths in the field. And Joseph says, suddenly my sheath of corn rose up and stood aright and all the other sheaths of the brothers' corn came around him and bowed down. (laughs) Um, And his brothers say, chapter 37, verse 8, are you joking? Are you going to be some sort of king and we're, we're going to bow down to you? They hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And he hasn't learned his lessons like kids at school who do the wrong thing and then the next day they do it again. Joseph has another dream and he tells his father and brothers, this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. (laughs) And this time his father says, what kind of dream is that? You know, will I and your mother and your brothers all bow down to you? So his brothers were jealous of him. You bet they were. And the text says, verse 11, his father kept the matter in mind. Yes, I suppose he did. And as parents, when we hear our kids say unusual things, we do keep it in mind, thinking, was that just random or did that mean something deeper? Is something else going on here? And so then it happens. Verse 12, the brothers are off looking after the flocks some miles away from Shechem. Joseph is 17 years old by now. And Jacob says to Joseph, go and see how your brothers are going and then bring back word. And the brothers see him coming. Look, here comes the dreamer. And this is our opportunity. And initially they plan to kill him and explain to Jacob that some wild animal has probably killed him or whatever. But Reuben, the eldest brother, says, let's not take his life. Let's throw him into a cistern. And so they take him and throw him into this cistern. But then they look up and there's a caravan of Ishmaelite Ishmaelite traders coming. And when the text says they looked up, that usually signals God's providence is at work. Remember, Isaac looked up and saw Rebekah. Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming. Anyway, and Judah has an idea. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him. And so the traders buy Joseph and take him off as a slave to Egypt. And the brothers take Joseph's lovely coat, his many-coloured coat, dip it in goat's blood and bring it back to their father Jacob. And they say, we found this, we think you'll recognise whose it was. And Jacob tears his robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured Jacob. And Jacob go, uh, devoured Joseph. And Jacob goes into mourning. And it's not just sibling rivalry that's going on, is it? It's cruelty to their father. How can they do this to their father? And there are so many things in this narrative where we scratch our heads and go, whoa, what is God doing here? And then in chapter 38, the family starts disintegrating. Joseph is sold. And verse 1, Judah leaves them and goes down to live with the Canaanites. Judah takes a Canaanite woman as his wife and has three sons by her. The first son marries a girl named Tamar, but that son is so evil that God takes his life. And then Judah's second son marries Tamar, 
because that's how the Leveret law of marriage was supposed to work in ancient Israel. The next brother down has to marry the <coughs> widow of his brother and any kids that they have will then be in the name of his brother. And, but the second son is so evil that God takes his life as well. But then Judah doesn't want to give Tamar his third son because he thinks some sort of curse might be going on. In other words, Judah is spiritually insensitive. He doesn't see that his sons were wicked and that God's judgment had come upon them. Uh, and he figures something's wrong with Tamar because everyone she marries dies. No, it was your sons, Judah. And so Tamar is left as a young widow and Judah tells her to go and live with her father until my son Shelah grows up. But that's a lie. He has no intention whatsoever of giving her his third son. Then Judah himself is widowed. His wife dies. And now it's this horrible scene. Judah goes up to Timnah where his men are shearing his sheep. And the sheep shearing time is a bit like the Mardi Gras, time of partying, drinking and sexual looseness. And guess what? Tamar hears about it and she thinks, I know what to do. And she obviously knows her father-in-law only too well because she puts a veil around her face and pretends to be a prostitute on the road to Timnah. The interesting thing here is that Tamar is loyal to the family. She wants to marry into Judah's line, not marry a Canaanite. And Judah's third son has now grown up, but Judah is clearly not going to give his third son to her. And Judah comes by and sees her by the road and sure enough he's taken in and promises to give her a young goat. And she says, give me your seal and the staff in your hand as a pledge until you send it. And he gave her his seal and his, his staff and goes in and sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. And then when Judah hears that his daughter-in-law has played the prostitute and is now pregnant. He goes all self-righteous and says, oh, this is terrible. Bring her out and have her burned to death. And she's brought out and she says, here are the gifts that were given to me by the man whose child this is. And it's Judah's own seal and staff. And he's been uh, totally caught and totally shamed. And the text doesn't say he was shamed, but you bet he was. Now his brothers and his father know that he has slept with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Mm. And this is Judah's redemption, his turning point, because he owns up to his sin. And he sees that Tamar is more righteous than him and that she was trying to be loyal to the family and that he had caused this problem because he would not give his third son to her as the law said. And so he owns up to his guilt and God is merciful to him. And this is the beginning of an extraordinary transformation in Judah as we'll see next week. Uh, and you'll never guess what happens, right? What happens? What does God do? He uses the line of 
Yet it's through Tamar and Judah that Jesus will come. Through her son Perez, she has twins, the younger is Perez. And through Perez, ten generations later, David. And then through David, all the kings of Israel. And then Judah, the messianic line, comes through this incident here. Wow. What a testimony to God's grace and providence that he can take even the worst situation and bring good out of it. And God will not throw away anybody who has faith in him. And now in chapter 39, the story switches to Egypt. Joseph starts out a bit bratty, you'd have to say, but quickly grows up in the face of his suffering. And he becomes a very noble person. Joseph is taken down to Egypt and sold to a middle-ranking nobleman in the Egyptian court in service of Pharaoh, a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar discovers quite quickly that Joseph is a very useful guy to have around because Joseph is successful in everything he does. He looks after everything extremely well. Because, as the narrator says in chapter 39, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. And in the light of what we've looked at in the last few weeks, this is interesting. The Lord was with Abraham, the Lord was with Isaac, the Lord was with Jacob, and now the Lord is with Joseph. Joseph is now the one carrying the promise of the presence of God. And the Lord causes everything Joseph does to prosper. So Potiphar thinks, this is wonderful. I've got this guy and, and he can run my whole household. And I don't have to worry about anything because he's so good and so reliable. And I can just get on with serving Pharaoh and sleep easy because Joseph will look after my household for me. But Joseph is a handsome man and He's about the house doing his business and Potiphar's wife, verse 7, casts her eye on Joseph and says, why don't you come to bed with me? Uh, The old man's out of the house. It's just you and me. And clearly the narrator of Genesis wants us to contrast Tamar and Judah with, with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Mrs. Potiphar, I guess. And Joseph won't have any of it. Joseph knows that the Lord is with him and that this is completely out of line. And she speaks to Joseph day after day. She's going at him, she's going at him, she's going at him. And suddenly she seizes her moment when the two of them are alone and she grabs him by the garment and he runs away leaving his garment behind. And then, as happens in so many stories, so many movies, so many books, she is very, very angry. She's been scorned, she's been spurned, and she will get her revenge. And she says to her husband when he comes home, the Hebrew slave of yours was trying to seduce me, and I shouted, and he left his garment behind and ran away. End of career. For Joseph, Joseph is put in prison. What's going to happen? We know the purposes of God are with Joseph. 
But he goes into prison. What will now take place? Uh, How is God's purpose for the family of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob going to go forward? If the one who seems to be now carrying the promise of God, the blessing of God, if he's in prison, what will God do? Well, chapter 39, verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him kindness. And that's that lovely Hebrew word, kesed, (laughs) kindness. Um, God's generous, compassionate, warm-hearted love. Joseph in prison knows the presence of God. He didn't build an altar, but we can be sure that he was a man of prayer. And as we saw last week, his father Jacob learnt to pray. And I'm sure Jacob would have taught Joseph (coughs) all about prayer. And in his prayer, Joseph became a very wise man. Because as we'll see now, he becomes the archetypal wise man. Firstly, the one who can interpret dreams. He used to have his own dreams, but now he will interpret the dreams of, of others. And above all, Joseph is the one who knows what to do, how to do things. He's the wise man who's going to take this story forward. And so while he's in prison, the warden, rather like Potiphar, put Joseph in charge of all who were being held in prison. And he made Joseph responsible for everything that was done in the prison. And verse 23, the warden doesn't need to worry about anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in everything he did. So far, so good. But what's God going to do now? In chapter 40, two of Pharaoh's key officials, his chief baker and chief cupbearer, have both offended Pharaoh and they've both been thrown into prison as well. And in the ancient world, prison wasn't a place where you just stayed forever, unless, of course, they forgot about you. But it wasn't a custodial sentence. It was where they put you while they figured out what to do with you. And so these guys are in prison, wondering what's going to happen to them. And one morning they tell Joseph that they both had dreams. And Joseph says, verse 8, Why not tell me me your dreams? Uh, Dreams belong to God, and maybe I can help. So the chief cupbearer tells his dream to Joseph about a, a vine with three branches, and the blossoms come out, And the clusters ripen into grapes. And then he says, I was holding the cup and I was squeezing the grapes into the cup and handing it to Pharaoh. That was the dream. And Joseph says, good news, within three days, you'll be Pharaoh's cupbearer once again and you'll put the cup into his hand. And then Joseph says one of the most poignant things in the whole narrative. Verse 14 When that happens, please remember me. Show me kindness. I didn't do anything to deserve being in prison. In fact, I was stolen uh, from my homeland. And I don't deserve to be here. I'm innocent. Please remember me. And then sadly, the chief baker tells Joseph his dream. And this time it's bad news. The chief baker 
has a dream of three baskets on his head and, and the baked food there is for Pharaoh in these baskets and the birds are coming and eating the cakes out of the baskets. And Joseph says, in three days' time, Pharaoh will lift up your head and hang you on a pole and the birds will come and eat your flesh. Ooh. So it happens. In three days' time, the chief cupbearer gets his job back and the chief baker gets executed. But the chief cupbearer completely forgot about Joseph. And then suddenly, in chapter 41, everything changes for Joseph. Because it's Pharaoh's turn to have a dream, or rather a double dream, and these dreams come in pairs to confirm the, the truth of them. Pharaoh dreams about the cows who come down to drink at the Nile River. And there are seven fat cows and seven thin cows. And the seven thin cows eat the fat cows, but then they don't look any fatter. And then the same thing happens with some ears of corn. The thin ones eat the fat ones, but they stay thin. And Pharaoh is seriously worried. He knows that something is going on, but he doesn't know what it is. And at that point, the chief cupbearer says, Oh, I remember now, there was this young Hebrew slave in prison with me, and he was, he was pretty good at interpreting dreams. Maybe he's the sort of person that Pharaoh needs. And so they go to the prison, get Joseph, give him a wash and brush up, and present him before Pharaoh. And Joseph says to Pharaoh pretty much what he'd said to the others that actually God is in charge of dreams. And Joseph knows that God is with him. Uh, and Joseph is not so arrogant as to think, I can do this in my own strength. He knows that this is God's business. And so Pharaoh tells Joseph the dreams, and Joseph says, God has revealed what he is about to do. There's going to be seven good years coming when your crops and your harvest are going to be spectacular. But then there'll be seven years of famine. And Joseph says, what you need is to find somebody who is really wise and skilled, who is able to organise things so that Egypt will be ready for the famine when it comes. And so Pharaoh then says, well, we've got the wisest guy we've ever met right here standing in front of us. Um, Joseph, it's you. You've just written your job description. <laughs> and so Joseph at once becomes number two in the whole nation of Egypt. Having been number two to Potiphar, which didn't end so well, and number two in the jail, now he's number two to Pharaoh himself and he's given a wife and Joseph then organises Egypt so that during the seven years of plenty, they store the corn and they keep enough provisions to keep them through the bad years which are to come and in fact help many nations around them in the time of famine that does eventually come, including Joseph's brothers and family. So putting it all together... A few comments. The life Joseph had 
wasn't the life he would have chosen for himself or thought he would have. He was scorned by his brothers, sold into slavery by them. And the fact that his own brothers had placed him in captivity must have just added to the trauma of what he was experiencing. He knew, in fact, that several of the brothers had wanted to kill him. And he went from being the loved son of his father to fearing for his life. He's cut off from his family, his friends, his culture, his language. From this point on, his life is going to be characterised by a loss of freedom, by a loss of choice, and living in the presence of constant fear and uncertainty. Can you imagine those early days of his captivity, not knowing if he would live or die, possibly mistreated, his mind working overtime to figure out why his brothers had done this to him and how can he escape and return to his home. But despite everything, he participated and cooperated with God's plan for Abraham's descendants to be a blessing to all nations. Joseph didn't just survive the ordeal, he actively participated in being a blessing to others. He did his jobs well. He was trustworthy. He showed integrity. He wasn't corrupt or negligent. Uh, I'm sure he prayed a lot and God kept giving him the wisdom that he needed. And as he brought blessing to others, he was given bigger and bigger tasks. As a household servant, then as a personal attendant to Potiphar, then running a household, then running a jail, and then running Egypt alongside Pharaoh himself. Ultimately, he fed many nations. All in fulfilment of God's promise to Abraham, all peoples will be blessed through you and your descendants. What would have happened if Joseph had not done his job? How many people would have lost their sanity or lost their lives? And what did Joseph need in order to do his job? People skills, management skills, knowledge of agriculture and commerce, leadership qualities, now know-how uh, to build storage facilities, manage pests and water damage, prevent theft, and at least one second language, and a deep knowledge of God and constant prayer. And at every opportunity he spoke about God and his purposes and promises. And he was able to interpret dreams and speak prophetically about the future because God gave him insight. And God's presence with Joseph was obvious to Pharaoh. And so this is a picture of Joseph being a blessing to the whole world. When his brothers enter the story again, we'll see how he blesses him, blesses them, not just with food, but by bringing reconciliation, healing, faith into his family, leading them back to God and uniting them again with their father, Jacob. God uses Joseph, the rejected godly brother, 
to bring blessing to the family and the whole world. And there are so many parallels with Jesus here. The beloved son sent by his father to his brothers. The guiltless one sold by his brothers for 20 pieces of silver and so becomes their Lord. The one handed into the hands of wicked men in order that the world would be saved. The one humbled but then exalted with, many bow- with the world bowing down to him. The one who was faithful in the midst of unjust suffering. The one who just exudes blessing as the righteous leader. All this is an extraordinary glimpse of Jesus Christ. Absolutely incredible. What about us? In Christ where you renewed by the Spirit to partner with God just as Joseph did. God wants to bring blessing through us to the world and he wants to bless us. But we may not always feel blessed. We may feel we're not experiencing the life that we expected. And there are many times when we feel that we're staring at the jail wall feeling, I don't deserve this. This isn't fair. Um, We may feel like things are going disastrously in our lives uh, and that they'll never change, especially those of us who have been deliberately harmed by our family. A big encouragement from this story of Jacob, Joseph, is that he pressed on, making the most of opportunities to learn new skills, holding on to the big picture of God blessing the world through Abraham's descendants, which we know will be through Jesus in the end. Even while Joseph was experiencing the most unjust treatment, he was making the most of his situation, acting well, uh, continuing to learn, being trustworthy, developing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, growing in wisdom. He kept taking the next step that was presenting itself to him that seemed to be heading in the direction of bringing blessing to others. That was his guiding star. Be a blessing to the world. In other words, Joseph was intentionally living in the story of God. What about us being a blessing to other people? You are a blessing already to many people. You may be somebody who sends money to help others here or overseas. If you're a parent, child, grandparent, sibling, spouse, aunt, uncle, worker, employer, you already are a blessing to many. Uh, You may be an artist or musician bringing beauty, enjoyment or insight to others. You may make people laugh. You may just be a great companion to others. You may be a teacher or an encourager. You may pay taxes, support charities, do your job well with joy and integrity. Um, You keep God in the picture. What is he doing in the world? He wants to bring blessing through me. Um, That's what he's doing. 
And you, so you keep praying for that. You keep stepping forward in that. And you share the gospel, which is a prophetic word of the future. Just as Joseph shared that prophetic word, we have the gospel, which tells people of the future. Uh, pointing people to the God who is above all. And these are all things that we want to do more and more. And who knows what God may do <laughs> through our efforts. And God can open so many doors uh, where we can speak about Jesus. And God can orchestrate the, uh, through the most unlikely set of circumstances, the most astonishing blessing. That's the message of this story. Absolutely incredible what God can do through our lives. So how can you keep going uh, when the life that you have been given is not the life that you thought that you would be given? Take the next step. Look at what God is giving you to do next. God will show you um, do as Joseph did. Make the most of every opportunity to be a blessing to others. Keep participating. Keep co cooperating with God in this great story that he is telling of his blessing coming to the world. Amen.